Hello and welcome to Made to Measure, the podcast of the Journal of Trading Standards. I'm Paul Evans. In this week's podcast, we speak to CTSI's two joint lead officers for intellectual property, Handley Brustad and Gavin Terry. Between them, Handley and Gavin have a wealth of experience in dealing with intellectual property and counterfeiting issues, and they are able to paint a powerful picture of the threats to consumers posed by products such as fake electrical chargers, clothes and cigarettes. While the popular perception of those who sell counterfeit goods may be a lovable Dell Boy type rogue, the reality is far more troubling. It's often thought too that the only victims of counterfeiting are big, wealthy designer brands. In fact, there are clear links between counterfeiting and serious organised crime, and those who lose out are the consumers whose health and safety can be severely jeopardised by the actions of unscrupulous criminals with no regard for the harm they cause. As well as the ongoing problem of fighting counterfeit goods in the UK, Handley and Gavin also cover Brexit, criminal penalties and offer some advice to others in the trading standards profession. Handley kicked things off by offering a bit of background into his role. I'm Handley Brewstead. I'm a joint lead officer on intellectual property. My day job did involve working for the shared regulatory services of Bridgend, Cardiff and the Vale of Clamorgan. I have recently retired from that after 51 years and I've been involved in intellectual property matters since the early 90s. My name is Gavin Terry. I'm a Chartered Trading Standards Practitioner and a self-employed Trading Standards Consultant. One of the roles that I fulfil is that I'm a CTSI Lead Officer for Intellectual Property, uh, along with Handley Brewstead. As well as that, I'm also involved in various other roles as CTSI Lead Officer. Uh, I'm the Vice Chair of the National Markets Group. Uh, and I also undertake uh, intellectual property training uh, on behalf of the Intellectual Property Office. Intellectual property is an interesting area of trading standards in that it involves protecting businesses' interests as much as those of consumers. How do those two elements complement one another? Intellectual property has four strands. Copyright, design, patents and trademarks. Patents tends to be dealt with quite differently. Trading standards don't normally get involved in that. That's got its own legal system and its own court to go through, through the uh, Intellectual Property Office. One of the key roles of, of trading standards work is, is to uh, ensure consumer protection and uh, a big part of that is, is achieved by working with legitimate business to make sure that they are regulatory compliant and that they trade in, in a legal way. It's quite often a, a sort of perception within the, the, the wider populace that when you look at intellectual property enforcement, that people assume that you're working on behalf of the, the, the big business rather than working on behalf of the consumers. But in my opinion, that's a, a misnomer uh, or a flawed interpretation uh, because intellectual property, like all forms of our business compliance work and business advice work, is involved in actually... Uh, working with legitimate businesses to make sure they're legally compliant and to make sure that their interests are protected from unfair trading practices. So working with a rights holder you know, to protect their intellectual property rights is no different from working with a manufacturer or a packer to ensure that they're legally compliant so that goods that they sell sell are legal as well. The end result is that we ensure that the consumer has a fair, equitable marketplace in which they can buy goods. 
do you feel that the importance of IP protection is understood by the wider public? Well, our role as the Treasury Standards Office is to ensure that uh, consumers get goods that are, that are accurately described. You know, that we ensure that descriptions are correct. You know, so, you know, across the whole trading standards spectrum, we enforce a wide range of legislation. You know, if we're looking at food, you know, we, we ensure that a pork sausage contains 42% of meat. Uh, we ensure that a pint of beer is the correct measure. We ensure that people selling low mileage second-hand cars, that the mileage is actually low and it's not misdescribed. Uh, and, it, you know, in relation to selling... Uh, clothing and anything marked with a trademark, then we ensure that if a trademark is applied to goods, that it, the goods are actually manufactured by the brand owner. A trademark is a badge of trade origin, and it's a it's a trade description of the of the origin of the goods. So, if a consumer is buying a product that's counterfeit, where the trademark is applied by by a counterfeiter, that's a misrepresentation and a fraudulent act. And, you know, so we work to protect consumers in you know to make sure that trade descriptions are correct. And, and, and it's no different if you're looking at cars or, or any consumer products. Product counterfeiting, we're working to ensure that consumers actually buy uh, the goods that they think they're buying. There was a recent, uh, well, about four or five years ago, PricewaterhouseCoopers carried out some research that established that approximately 30% of consumers, about a third of consumers who buy counterfeit goods, buy them unwittingly or you know, they're actually being misled. So, you know, it suits the counterfeiters and the people who want to sell counterfeit goods. It suits them to put forward the argument that that they're supplying a, a cheaper version of the branded product. I mean, that's an absolute misnomer because counterfeit products are nothing to do with the, the original genuine product. They're, they're an inferior product that's actually had a trademark applied to it falsely so that counterfeiters can pass off the counterfeit good as a, as a genuine product. So it, it's not a like-for-like like comparison. If you were to buy a tin of Heinz beans, if you go to Sainsbury's or if you went to Morrison's or any other supermarket, they're all selling Heinz beans so they can compete on price. But you're looking at the same product from the same source, the same trade origin. With counterfeiters, counterfeiters try to suggest that it's the same comparison but the comparison isn't the same because the, the legitimate goods manufactured by the rights holder are totally different to the actual good counterfeit goods, which nobody knows where they've come from. They don't know the trade origin of them. We don't know you know, where they've been made, where they've come from. But what, the only thing we do know is that, that they will have a, counter, a trademark applied to them without permission, uh, and cosmetically they may look like the genuine product so that the cannabis can pass them off. Obviously, some products have an inherent safety risk as well. Electrical products, pharmaceuticals, food, counterfeit alcohol, even counterfeit tobacco, which you know, legitimate tobacco uh, in the UK has to be self-extinguishing. So if you leave it, uh, if you drop a cigarette and leave it, it'll, it'll go out. Counterfeit cigarettes don't have the fire retardant uh, capability built into them so there have been instances of house fires caused by counterfeit cigarettes that have been dropped and left and they've led to house fires so the key point from a consumer's point of view is that that nobody knows the origin nobody knows the manufacturing specifications and consequently nobody knows whether they're going to comply with the relevant regulations or not when you look at how the public perceive intellectual property, it, it can be 
really varied from one extreme to the other. Many, many years ago, people would look at intellectual property, uh, particularly trademarks this would, would involve, and it was always a case of, oh, well, you know, it's, it's just a couple of DVDs that they sell down the market or a bit of clothing which you can get so much cheaper than the genuine article. It has evolved so much since that time. It has never, ever decreased. The, the infringement of intellectual property has gone up every single year that I can remember. And what has changed has been the fact that where it was mainly clothing and footwear of big brands like Nike, Adidas, Puma, it branched out from that into almost anything you can think of. We started to see an influx of electrical goods and they would be, you know, sort of of really mediocre quality and some of them could be quite dangerous and certainly in the past have caused death. They then moved on, you know, and it, it went into designer perfumes. <laughs> Never designer perfumes what they put in there. It would be pond water with something added to it and... Certainly the bacteria, when these were tested, were found to be quite lethal. Makeup became popular, you know, they were counterfeit makeup. Yeah, they moved on to batteries, batteries which would sort of heat up and in the worst instance would explode, cause a fire. And that can be sort of quite distressing. And hair, hair straighteners, which again... The counterfeit ones had a tendency to heat up and tangle in the hair. And, of course, you know, the consequences of that is being sort of burns to the scalp and, you know, quite severe burns as well. So it's changed drastically. They moved on to counterfeiting food and alcohol. When you counterfeit alcohol in particular, one of the things is to actually sort of strengthen the hit of the alcohol. So to do that, they would put in something like methanol, which really gives it a kick, you know, when you drink. Unfortunately, that can be a poison and can cause blindness and certainly has caused deaths. Some in the UK and not too long ago, uh, quite a few in the Ukraine, which caused uh, some comments to come from the very top with... Vladimir Putin taking, you know, a role to try and sort out what was going on within their country. Now, Gavin, have you seen any big shifts in the types of things that get counterfeited? What the market does is it'll follow consumer attitudes and, and consumer fads. And, you know, and obviously with things like toys, for example, you know, every Christmas there will be a must-have toy or toys and, uh, you know, counterfeiters will, will react to that and, and obviously try to exploit any any sort of change in, in market trend, any, any consumer, you know, where a consumer goes, then counterfeiters will follow. Uh, recently, the IP crime report, which is produced by the Intellectual Property Office on a, a, an annual basis, uh, the 2019 report was released in September this year, and the top 10 counterfeit products at the moment are uh, cigarettes, clothing, uh, cosmetics, which clearly has a health and safety risk. You know, cosmetics again, you, nobody knows what's in them. You know, they, 
there could be allergic reactions, there could be dangerous substances in counterfeit cosmetics. Uh, footwear, uh, perfume, which again has inherent health and safety risks. Jewellery, uh, alcohol, uh, which again, you know, where's the alcohol made? Is it industrial alcohol? Is it uh, adulterated? You know, there have been instances of poisoning and, and uh, consumer harm from counterfeit alcohol, over and above the fact that alcohols are harmful. Uh, electrical products, toys, uh, and the tenth most commonly seized product last year were, were DVDs. I mean, that, that's one significant trend that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is the shift, because I would suggest 10 years ago, disc piracy, DVD piracy was, was one of the bigger areas. Uh, we have seen a big shift from, from physical discs uh, to, to file sharing and online distribution methods for, for music and film and computer games, although uh, DVDs are, are beginning to feature again and discs are beginning to, to come back a bit, but, but that's one significant trend we've seen over a period of time is the shift from physical piracy in relation to copyright, uh, the, the shift from the physical to the actual file sharing and online infringements. So, Handley, that's some of the types of counterfeit products you come up against. What about where they tend to be sold? Almost anywhere that you can think of that you can buy anything. In days gone past, it was certainly in the beginning the realm of your car boot sale or marketplace, you know, your Sunday market or what, whichever day that it came upon. And there are still a few of those dotted about the UK where the amount of counterfeit goods is quite prevalent. Not hidden, you know, it's not under the counter stuff. With, with retail shops now... It tends to be a little bit on the side, certainly with cigarettes. They don't openly put them out. Well, they can't openly put cigarettes out um, on display anymore. But this this is under the counter stuff. And they go to great extremes to uh, hide where they're actually getting the cigarettes from. In some places, they've had um, sort of false backing on uh, your skirting boards or there's been a false wall, which it's behind. So we've had to adapt quite drastically because, you know, when it was out in the open, we had a chance. With it going more and more underground, so the challenges become more and more difficult and we've got to look at different ways that we can discover where they're hiding all these goods or they might have them stashed away. Actually, getting them into the UK can be quite uh, brilliant on behalf of those that are doing it. They will hide them in all sorts of different containers. I've seen shipments coming through where... On the face of it, where customs might look at it, you've got a, say, a shirt uh, or any other sort of clothing garment. And on the face of it, it is just a normal piece of of clothing with a brand on there that means nothing. However, when you look a little bit more closely, if you snip the brand which is sort of sewn on the outside and in the neck label... Underneath, you would find something like uh, Lacoste or Paul Ralph Lauren. So on the surface, it's just a cheap piece of clothing. 
suddenly you take the label off and, you know, you uh, suddenly got something which was, can sell for quite considerable amount of money. The online market has once again caused challenges to us because we're no longer dealing with just sellers in the UK. You're now trying to deal with worldwide sellers. And it is not always easy to pick up where these sales are coming from. And do you encounter many cases of legitimate, conscientious retailers who've been duped into selling counterfeit goods? Yeah, yeah, I can certainly think of a few instances, you know, that I've dealt with where we've picked up what we know are counterfeit goods from major retailer, you know, national major retailer. And um, in one instance, there was uh, 36 thousand adidas polo shirts and in discussions with the company and we look at all their paperwork and everything else and yes their buyer had had samples and he'd had them checked and you know everything was fine you know this looked like a good deal but then when the 36,000 came uh they were counterfeit so where the sample was good, the actual product that came wasn't. And in another instance where this this is where they were very, very clever and it involved um, Calvin Klein boxer shorts. We picked up some that we were a little bit concerned about and the boxes were counterfeit and the shorts weren't. This caused some concern. So in in digging a lot deeper, again, this ranged into the thousands then. What we found was, was that they'd got, um, I think it was 20% were genuine and 80% weren't. And what they'd done was they'd mixed some of the genuine ones into the counterfeit boxes to make it even harder for anyone to pick up because... You know, you say, oh, well, I don't know how the box got there, but that's genuine. Do you find there are certain countries that are frequently the sources of different types of counterfeits? Yes. Um, cigarettes tends to be Russia, Eastern European, clothing, and almost anything else you can think of tends to sort of come from China, out of Hong Kong. Turkey, you know, is another one that sort of comes to mind. And Trying to work with governments in these countries certainly has not been easy. I know that um, Turkey's application to join the EU is uh, sort of been discussed for uh, many years. And one of the things that they want put into place is that they deal with the counterfeit problem and the amount of goods that come out of there. But the consignments, you know, can be labelled as anything. Um, they, they can be quite hidden, certainly in imported doors. You find that the doors contain all the cigarettes inside the door in the hollow parts. Now, cigarettes sound like a particularly dangerous product for people to be buying counterfeit versions of. Yes, with any product where there is no quality control involved and with cigarettes... They will put absolutely anything in there 
to fill it up. So that means that the ones that I've seen tested have been where, you know, you've got some sort of the strength of the cigarette and what tar it contains. These are way above those. They're, they're way above legal limits, you know, and and it's going to do, if, if you do smoke, the, the damage that can be caused is probably not going to be able to be dealt with, you know, in years to come. It'll, it'll be something that they will regret. And as cigarettes become or have become more and more expensive, so people like to think, oh, well, you know, yeah, I can get... I can get these cheaper down the pub or online or through, say, you know, sort of some small retailer that they might know that has quite a sophisticated system of who they sell to. And the harm that it does, certainly we can't measure. That will take time. And they convince themselves that the reason that they're able to buy them cheap is that these are ones which are like uh, tax-free, they're duty-free, um, have come in and, you know, that that's the reason that they're cheap. And in the main, that's not the case whatsoever. The, these are not cigarettes that someone's gone across to the continent and bought, you know, a big consignment and managed to get them in. These are quite lethal. The, these people, one, they're totally unscrupulous. They do not care for the safety of anyone. All it is, is money. It is a money-raising exercise. They have no thought to the health and safety of anyone, and it's just a matter of produce as cheaply. Don't bother with any of the, uh, you know, the niceties of we have to put this so that it doesn't go on fire or we have to do this so that it is safe. They don't check anything, and what they put into them is totally immaterial. Gavin, have there been any significant changes in approach to intellectual property enforcement in recent years? Are more private contractors working on behalf of brands, for example? Well, yes. I mean, the, the rights holders themselves have, have, have always taken action in relation to counterfeiting and piracy because, obviously, it's infringement of their rights. So, you know, I, I've been involved in this area of work for about 20 years now, and... Uh, Rights holders have always protected their own rights, but then obviously they, they may employ brand protection managers or, or they may employ third-party providers, investigation companies to work on their behalf to protect their rights. And then they may also rely on the state by approaching trading standards. Certainly through the period of austerity, we've seen a drop-off in the, the number of local authorities who will actually take on purely counterfeit issues. And many authorities have a policy that there has to be both intellectual property infringement and health and safety risks, you know, as we've mentioned before, with electrical products, uh, food products and things like that, or toys. So, so local authority training centres may take action if there's IP and safety infringement, but they may not just look at pure IP infringement. So in those circumstances, the rights holders you know, will protect the rights themselves. There has been, as you say, there has been a, an increase in the use of private prosecutions instigated by the rights holders or their third-party providers. Uh, private prosecution seems to be utilised by the third-party providers uh, because in law, anybody can instigate a, pr a prosecution. It doesn't need to be the police 
or the local authorities, any any individual can instigate a private prosecution. So some of the third party providers offer that as a service. And the the, the, the way the private prosecution works is that on a, a successful conviction, uh, the the provider or the brand are able to recover uh, some of their prosecution costs from central funds. So it is in effect uh, a prosecution funded by the state. My own personal view on that as a CTSI lead officer is that you know if the money is coming from the state to cover the cost of private prosecution, you know why is that money not being fed into trading standards to enable the local authorities to to prosecute in the public interest on behalf of the wider community rather than uh, you know leaving it to a third party provider who may be working on behalf of a brand holder or on their own volition. And do you think the prosecution rates and penalties applied to counterfeiters, the criminals' money can be confiscated via the Proceeds of Crime Act, for example, serve as a strong enough deterrent? Well, in relation to the legislation, the Trademarks Act or the Copyright Designs and Patents Act, the penalties are significant, up to 10 years imprisonment or an unlimited fine. You rightly say there's the Proceeds of Crime Act that also applies because the trademark and copyright offences are scheduled lifestyle offences. So if you sell one counterfeit product, then you, you trigger the assumptions under the Proceeds of Crime Act. So you leave yourself open to a Proceeds of Crime action. And uh, uh, you know, that is the best practice approach uh, you know, with the higher level operatives, you know, higher level counterfeiters. And we've seen significant prosecutions, particularly recently in relation to the uh, broadcast piracy, people selling Cordy boxes and uh, uh, these sort of devices that enable people to, to uh, view television broadcasts without paying licence fees. There have been some significant uh, sentences passed in relation to, to broadcast piracy. At, at a higher level, you know, the people actually import and, and deal and distribute the, the devices uh, across the country, so so we do get significant penalties in relation to criminal private prosecution. One of the limitations is the fact that the costs that are recoverable are the actual costs of the legal proceedings. So, you know, with a criminal private prosecution, there isn't the, the there's no access to funding unless a brand provides it. There's no access to funding for the investigation process. So, uh, private prosecutions tend to be around test purchases and prosecuting the immediate sellers. So, you know, they tend to be used in relation to lower-hanging fruit in the criminal chain. So, But, there, I mean, the key to, to combat counterfeit and piracy is to have a holistic approach, isn't it, where you have police or trading standards looking at the higher levels, use proceeds of crime, uh, look at the distributors, and, and, and obviously the rights always take civil action or criminal action in their own rights as well. I mean, there's so much of it about that everybody has a role to play. Handley, many of the networks involved with counterfeiting, from manufacturer through to distribution and sales, are obviously pretty complex. Now, that suggests the involvement of organised crime on quite a large scale. Intellectual property crime is so lucrative that organised crime has a hand in it ranging from, in years gone past, uh, leather coats, jackets used to come out of Italy and Sicily, and that was well organised by the serious crime group that organises, you know, everything in that country. What we've found within 
the UK is there are many, many organised crime groups now. Some of them are into terrorism. Some are into people trafficking. Some are into the drugs trade as well. So these are not, you know, just nice, as people like to think that anyone that sells them anything, which is, you know, a little bit on the dodgy side, not quite legal, but, you know, you're all right. Unfortunately, they tend to always assume that it's Del Boy, you know. He's a criminal, but, you know, he's likeable and we can trust him. That isn't the case. It, it is not like that in real life. They, they will talk to you nicely. Yeah, you know, if you're going to buy something off them, that's fine. But we, we are more organised now probably than we have ever been. If you take into it that intellectual property crime is enforced by, I think it's 260 plus local authorities throughout the UK, all of which are having to finance their own little bits and try and do, you know, bits of work alongside all their other work. About probably 12 years ago, there was a group set up which was like a national intellectual property crime group, of which I've been a member since the start, as has Gavin. And we, we attend on behalf of trading standards. And that brings together trading standards, the police, customs, major brands, some other, you know, sort of enforcement workers, like um, those that take out private prosecutions on behalf of a brand, because that that is another option where we may be lacking in an ability to do it in that area. They may employ then a private prosecutor to go and make test purchases and get the evidence and get them into court. We've also been joined by things like the Office of Fair Trading when that was there. Certainly um, the uh, Home Office has joined us. Um, Crown Prosecution Service and the idea was is that we were all sharing ideas and or the intellectual property office is uh, a major mover in that as well because at the beginning they financed it and gave us the ability to use their premises and actually have these meetings from that intellectual property sort of crime strategy group we were looking at first of all we looked and we had a top 10 of open markets where the majority of counterfeits were sold. And we have a national markets group that have looked at that and they run a scheme called The Real Deal, which was signing up markets, which were good markets and fair markets with minimalised ability for counterfeiters to get on them. And from their work, you know, the markets, and certainly some of them have been closed down completely. Some have changed their ways and, um, you know, have certainly become what markets should be. Uh, Probably the biggest is the barras up in uh, Glasgow. That was cleaned up, you know, with a combination of brands, police, trading standards. And any one of us couldn't do that. But now... We've got an ability to work together. And, of course, we've had the formation of PIPCU, which is the Police Intellectual Property Crime Unit, which looks at uh, intellectual property crime online and have got more facilities than one local authority would have. 
to be able to troll the internet and they have taken down thousands of websites which claim to be .co.uk given a perspective by uh, the perception that they're buying something from somewhere in the UK you know we we always recommend that you've got greater control over what your rights are uh, but when they arrive they haven't got anywhere in the UK these have come straight out of China and they, they've worked with, you know, the um, internet providers and everyone else to try and do that. We are still working with the online trading um, platforms like eBay, like Amazon and all the others to try and tighten up on what they do as well. Because just recently there's been a removal of unsafe toys from Amazon and as They've said as much as they make checks, you know, they can't physically check everything, which obviously is an impossibility. So it's a combined effort of everyone trying to work together and trying to share resources where we can. And, you know, occasionally you may get a case which is just too big for a local authority. So we would look then at the National Trading Standards Unit for their help we, we have to put a case forward to them for them to take it on from there. And certainly if it's in the public interest for that to be taken on, they're very supportive. And Gavin, since so many of the counterfeit goods for sale in the UK come in from overseas, presumably there's a need for cross-border cooperation in tackling them. Do you think Brexit might have an impact on this? Well, in relation to counterfeit in piracy, I mean, one of the, one of the risks with Brexit, I suppose, is the fact that... Um, it may offer an opportunity for counterfeiting and smugglers. And, you know, again, you've got the border question in Northern Ireland and you've got, you know, that will become what's going to happen, obviously, you know, if we leave with a no deal, for example, the UK borders are going to come back to the, the you know, the geographical borders of the island, you know, the British Isles. And under the current arrangements, we, you know, we've had free movement of goods within Europe for, for 30 years. So, you know, the, the business models around the supply of legitimate goods, but also the, but it's the same system within which the counters operate. We have free movement of goods in Europe, so our customs entry points don't necessarily check every product that comes into the, the British Isles, you know, particularly from Europe. I mean that that will change if we have a if we leave the customs union with it and have an no deal Brexit in a hard border, then by definition everything that's coming in from outside the the British Isles will be imported products because the model has been free movement from Europe. You know it will be counterfeiters may be able to use that as an opportunity uh, you know, by routing goods through Europe into the UK. It's, it's a route. It's one of the key routes in you know even if the goods are physically ordered over the internet they they have to come by road or sea or a combination of the two into the uk one of the other risks with brexit again with the no deal brexit is the government had been talking about setting up free ports and uh, you know opportunities to trade i mean unfortunately you know the free port model around the, the, the world we do see uh, the fact that the existence of free ports is something that counterfeiters and organised crime groups dealing in counterfeit goods make use of and exploit. So, you know, there is a potential risk 
that if we if we do become you know set up free ports around the country, you know they could be hubs that, that are exploited by counterfeiters as, as a route into Europe. So there are a, a lot of inherent risks in relation to Brexit. There is a database where we get some warnings on safety issues. If we leave. At the moment, my understanding is we will not have access to that database. Obviously, negotiations are going on. It doesn't help that we don't know whether we're going or not going or when or whatever. But trading standards over the last two years have not just ignored whether we go or not. We've looked at all aspects of our work and highlighted it in a report to um, the Houses of Parliament and the government of our concerns and where it's going to affect us in different areas until we know what it's going to be. It's one of those questions that we just don't know. And Gavin, just to round things off, do you have any words of advice to others in trading standards about how to deal with particularly challenging cases of intellectual property infringement? Well, I mean, my advice to any trading standards investigator, you know, if you're looking at intellectual property crime, if you're looking at counterfeiting and piracy issues, then you know the, the first point will be to identify the actual rights that, that are involved. You know, are, are they trademark infringement? Are there infringements of registered design rights? You know, are they copyright issues? So you need to be able to identify the rights that the, you're alleging have been infringed. Uh, the, the second point will be, you know, once you've identified the rights, you know, make contact with the rights owner uh, because the, you know you will need them evidentially to prove the validity of the rights. Um, but they may be able to support you or help you in your investigation. There's a a little bit I'd like to add to that as well, because tricks of the trade, I've always been one of those uh, when, even with reduced resources, if I see something wrong, I deal with it. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not doing that today. I'm on other duties. I I just dealt with it. As as far as I'm concerned, that, that is our job. And I would say to all our members out there, whether they be members of the Institute or not, certainly you're in the profession of trading standards. If you see something wrong, just deal with it. Worry about how long it's going to take and everything else. If it becomes complicated and complex, Get in touch with the people that know how to put you in touch with the people that can help you, whether it be the brands, they will help you. They will help you with storage. They will help you with uh, the um, statements that you need to say that it is counterfeit. Um, There's so many areas now that you can get help from. And it's a question of making sure that you ask someone. Go to the institute, ask them. Uh, They may not be able to do it through their limited resources, but they will certainly know who best to contact. And if, if it's myself or Gavin, you know, we would certainly help anyone and give them the advice of where to go to. And that's it for another episode. Thanks to Handley Brostad and Gavin Terry for talking to us. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again in a fortnight's time with more from the world of trading standards. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast or you just want to get in touch, send us an email to madetomeasure at jtsmag.uk. Don't forget to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.